John chapter 5, verses 25 to 30, resurrection and judgment. John chapter 5, 25 to 30. Yet we will start at verse 19 for this context. You may recall from last time, in this context, Jesus reiterates some points that he has mentioned briefly, and he emphasizes the fact that he is one in nature with the Father and one in purpose with the Father, specifically for salvation and condemnation. One in purpose in reference to salvation and con condemnation. So, John five nineteen to 30. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you that the two of you are of one mind and of one nature, and that we can trust what you say and what you reveal through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you also that we have his word here at our fingertips and that you have given us the ability by the Spirit and by our intelligence working through us, working through the image that you have created in us, giving us, Lord, by the cause and the, the work of the Spirit in us, enabling us to understand. We know, Lord, that we are indebted to you for this. We ask, Lord, that our understanding of the true gospel might increase. We might have more confidence in your word, have more clarity, and grow in faith and true knowledge in all things. 
This is our prayer, and we come asking in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. In John chapter 5, in the first 18 verses, we discussed, we learned how Christ healed a man on the Sabbath day. He healed a man, a desperate man, a man who had been in his ailment for 38 years. He healed him on the Sabbath day. We learned that Christ did that on purpose. He did that deliberately on the Sabbath day. We also learned that his opponents, the authorities and the Jews of the day, the religious authorities, the Jewish authorities, they were opposed to that and they persecuted Christ because of it. And then we saw that in verse, verses 17 and 18, that Christ reiterates his authority and re reiterates the relationship he has to the Father. That both in his nature and in his purpose, Christ is in agreement with the Father. Well, in verse 18, because Jesus asserts this, they want to kill him. They want to kill him because of not only breaking the Sabbath, which they wrongly understood, and also because Christ called him his own father, or God his own father, making himself equal with God. Those are the two pretexts for them wanting to persecute Jesus to death. They want to kill him. We first noticed in 19 to 30 that Jesus does not back away. He does not mitigate any of his words. He does not speak in a double-minded way. He's not a double-minded man, unstable in all his way. We saw that he does not cower in uh, the, the quietness of a cave. He does not flee the scene. He doesn't do any of that. But what does he do instead? We saw in verse 19, Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, to his opponents. He's still addressing his opponents with reasonings, with argumentation, with an explanation, with a defense, with evidence, with a testimony as to what is true. Jesus did this in the face of opposition. He did not shrink away. He did not practice cowardice, but he reiterated the truth and even turned up the heat in the conversation. He turned up the heat in this conversation by clearly announcing that he has the same nature as the Father he, and he has the same will or the purpose, same purpose as the Father. He has both. And having this, he is re, uh, emphasizing to them, reiterating to them that they must believe what he says because he in human flesh explains, defines, shows the will of the Father. That's who Christ is in human flesh. And that he came to explain clearly salvation and judgment, both how to be saved, how to receive eternal life, and then also the warning of eternal death, of eternal condemnation. He came to explain both, not just one or the other, but both at the same time. Now we pick it up at verse 25. Verse 25, Christ is still speaking. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is 
When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. The life and the death that he means in verses 25 to 26 is spiritual life, not the physical life. Though there is a relationship between the spiritual and the physical, in 25 to 26, he means the spiritual life of people. He's talking about the spiritual life of people. Keeping that in mind, and we shall show that clearly in a moment. In this explanation of how spiritual life comes about, he begins by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. He's speaking in truth. He's speaking with authority. He's speaking with certainty. He knows what he's saying is true, and he wants us to know it. He wants us to know it so that if among the opponents there are any detractors, any who are suspicious, any who want to find fault with the words of Christ, he's putting them on notice, you better not do that because what I'm telling you is true. Then, on the other hand, he is saying, truly, truly, I say to you, because he is telling those who believe or giving assurance to those who believe that what he says is going to result in, in their life, the outcome of their life or the outcome of their spiritual life will result in salvation. They can have confidence. They can have assurance that what Christ says will indeed result in their spiritual life. That is, they will receive eternal life and be with the Lord forever and ever. He says it based on his authority. I say to you. We saw from this expression that Christ is not a doubter. Christ is not uncertain about his will. Christ is not uncertain about his words. He has full confidence, full conviction, full authority in what he says. This is the way he speaks. And this is the way we should be. We should also be saying, it is written. We should also be saying, thus says the Lord. We should also be saying, this is what the word of Christ says. We should also be pointing people to Scripture on the authority of Scripture, the certainty of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and say, this is the word of God, and this is all I have to give to you. This is also expected of us. We saw this from Acts chapter 17. When the Apostle Paul went from place to place, it says in Acts 17, 2 to 3, that it was his custom to present the Word of God to the people. Acts 17, 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. This was the method of the Apostle Paul. To also do the same. To go to the people who would be willing to listen, to reason with them from the Scriptures, not from his own mind, not from philosophies of the world, not from any other books, but from the Scriptures, to explain and give evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and that this Christ 
is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the one you know who was ministering in the land of Israel. You have heard of him. You know of him. This is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. But someone might say, that was the Apostle Paul and that was Christ. Us, the rest of us in the church who are not apostles, not prophets, not Jesus Christ, we are not to do the same. No, look at Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, we also are to do the same. Acts chapter 18, at the end of the chapter, in verse 24, Acts 18, 24, it says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. Apollos, mighty in the scriptures. And we pick it up at verse 28, the last verse. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Powerfully refuted, which means he must use reasoning, he must use evidence, he must use argumentation. Now we're not talking about quarreling and bickering, we're not talking about that kind of uh, arguments, we're talking about logical argumentation, logical arguments, rational thinking. We have to explain to people and even refute what they say, and he did so to the refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures. There we go again. Mighty in the scriptures, by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. It applies to everyone. And Apollos is just one example of it. We could also mention Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen was not an apostle. Stephen was not a prophet. And yet Stephen, as one of the members of the church, he also did the same and the Jews could not cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, the text says in Acts chapter 6, before he actually refutes them in Acts chapter 7. So many, many examples in Scripture that it is for all of us to equip ourselves with true knowledge and then as we are able to reason and to argue with others based on the authority and clarity of the Scripture, Thus says the Lord to explain the true gospel. Further on, further in um, John 5.25, John 5.25, he says, An hour is coming and now is. An hour is coming and now is. It is not only an hour coming, meaning it is now and imminent, coming in the future, but he says, and now is. I believe that the now is qualifies what he means and that he's talking about spiritual resurrection. Spiritual resurrection. Because we will see in verses 28 to 29, he's going to speak of physical resurrection and he does not say, and now is. Look at 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice. There, he doesn't say now is the time of physical resurrection because that day is yet future. In verses 25 and 26, he means spiritual resurrection, which happens now and it will continue. So, 
If he speaks of spiritual resurrection in 25, he says, This spiritual resurrection is the dead hearing the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear, they live. They hear the voice of the Son of God. Firstly, he describes these people who live as first being dead. Correct? He doesn't say that they are partially dead. He says they are dead. And when the Bible means dead, it means dead, not partially dead, or mostly dead, or almost dead. He's speaking of those who are indeed spiritually dead. Now, the people who are spiritually dead, they cannot hear the voice of the Son of God unless the Son of God wills it. And we will show that too. For example, for example, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Here also he has another occasion to address his enemies. And in John chapter 8 he says, 843. Remember he's addressing his enemies, 843. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You cannot hear my word. That's why they don't understand and they persist in being his enemies. They cannot, they are unable to hear his word. Hear it with comprehension is what he means because he just said, why do you not understand? Because they cannot understand or comprehend his word to benefit them for their salvation. And why? Because, 44, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin if I speak the truth? Why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. In 44, he reminds them that they do not believe in him. They are not sons of God, but they are sons of the devil. You are of your father, the devil, a liar and a murderer, and you behave just like the devil. Verse 44 and in 45, just as the devil does not love the truth, so they don't, and they don't believe in Christ. In 45, he speaks of what is factually true, you do not believe me. In 43, he explained why they can't, because they cannot believe. They cannot hear his word for comprehension for their salvation. And then in 47, he says, who can? In 47, he says that if one is of God, he who is of God hears the words of God. This is just like John 5, 25. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. So if we are of God, we will hear that voice and we will come to life. If we're not of God, we're not going to hear that voice and come to life. Furthermore, speaking of, our, speaking of our deadness, Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read 1 to 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In verse 1, he reminds the Ephesian believers, which is also true of all of us, that before we had life in us, the life of Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead, spiritually dead. And our deadness is described in verses 2 to 3, summarized by being consumed and enslaved by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil, verses 2 to 3. We were just like the rest of mankind that's just like that, even now. But then what made the difference? Verse 4 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. While we had this condition, while we had the state of being dead spiritually, having no life toward God, it was God who had to make us alive. It says, made us alive together with Christ. Just as Jesus called out to Lazarus when he was in the tomb, John 11. Lazarus had been dead four days. He was in the tomb. Lazarus had no impulse, no physical impulse at all, right? His heart stopped beating for four days. And he was stinking there in the tomb, which happens to corpses, right? There is a stench of a corpse that occurs after death. And that's the condition Lazarus was in. But when Christ spoke the word, Lazarus came forth out of the tomb. Instantly, miraculously, God produced life in Lazarus, that physical life, so that he came out of the tomb. And this is the way it works spiritually. That's why the Bible uses this analogy of death to describe our spiritual life. We have no spiritual impulse unless God wills for those who hear it to hear the secret voice of God to bring us forth and to save us, to give us life. It requires God to give us life. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John 6, 44. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, 
and they all shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He says in 44, no one can come to me. There again, Christ speaks of our inability. We are incapable of coming to Christ. No one can come to me. And coming to Christ in verse 35 means believing in Christ. He uses the phrase come to me as equivalent to believing in me in verse 35. So no one can believe in Christ. No one can do that unless what happens? Unless the Father, 44, unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. There also in John 6, 44, he's speaking of our spiritual deadness and our spiritual deadness is resolved if the Father draws us to the Son and then the Son of God on the day of resurrection will raise us up physically from the grave. 44, is this a, or 45, John 6, 45, is this teaching a new teaching in the New Testament? No, it is written in the prophets. And what he does, Christ does, he conflates. He conflates or joins together a portion of the words of Jeremiah from Jeremiah 31, 34, and also a portion or a phrase from Isaiah, Isaiah 54, 13. Jeremiah 31, 34, and Isaiah 54, 13, he brings the words of these two, prof these two prophets together who are speaking of the same subject, and Christ puts these words together in one sentence, they all shall be taught of God. Who are the they all who will be taught of God? Jesus explains in 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That means that if the Father is teaching an individual, then that individual will come to Christ, will believe in Christ. If the Father teaches, those individuals will come to Christ. Now, this depends on the will of the Father. It also depends on the will of the Son. It also depends on the will of the Son. Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, 25. Matthew 11, 25. We know it depends on the will of the Son, even from our own passage in John 5, 25, when he says, they have to hear the voice of the Son of God. But now we are using another word to describe the same truth, which is the will of the Son of God. Matthew eleven twenty-five. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. That's the, the important phrase. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. In the previous paragraph, Jesus condemns cities 
that experienced his miracles yet refused to believe. But Christ is not upset or he's not demoralized by that. In, in fact, in verse 25, he praises God the Father for it. He praises God the Father in verse 25. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Why? Because God did two things. God the Father hid the truth from the world, uh, fleshly or worldly wise and intelligent people, those who think they are intelligent in their own sight. He hid things from them, but God revealed the truth for their salvation to infants, to those who have the innocence and humility of infants. God revealed it to them, and it was well-pleasing in the sight of the Father. Moreover, 27, everything happens this way. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. In this regard, he's saying, we can't know God the Father unless we know uh, what God the Son knows of God the Father. God the Father also the same with His Son. So, how can this happen? What is the, what is the gate? What is the door of knowledge to God the Father, 27. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him, the Father. If the Son wills to re reveal the Father to someone, then the Father will be revealed. And if that's the case, just as He said in John 5, 25, we have to hear the voice of the Son of God, then how are we going to hear His voice? We're going to hear His voice by Scripture. We're going to hear His voice because the Spirit of Christ uses the Word of Christ to produce a child of God, to bring forth a child of God. The Spirit of Christ uses the Word of Christ to produce a child of God. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. John 6, 63. Furthermore, if this salvation is by the voice of the Son of God, by the will of the Son, then no one should take the Son of God lightly. No one should take the Son of God flippantly. No one should be casual with speaking of the things of Christ. No one should be. Whenever Christ's name is mentioned, there should be attention. Whenever Christ's name is mentioned, there should be respect. There should be honor given to His name. The attitude we have in approaching God through Christ must be one of ultimate submission and attention. Whenever Christ speaks, let's listen. Because those who listen shall have life, he says. Verse 25, those who hear shall have life. Which reminds us that we have to understand and believe that we are dead, truly dead, and that there is no life in us unless God gives us life. And only a humble man will acknowledge that. Proud men, arrogant men, 
full of their own wisdom, full of their own ideas, full of their own philosophies, will not submit to the voice of the Son of God. And therefore, what do they jeopardize? What do they throw away? Life, eternal life. God is offering something good and precious, and they have the audacity to spit in the face of God or to punch God in the face and to walk away. We can't do that because He is the only source of life, the only source of true peace, love, happiness, goodness, hope, only is in Christ, the hope of eternal life. 26, verse 26, For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. This life is in the hands, is in the, the authority of Christ. He has it, and He is one who gives it to whomever He wishes. Here, we have the same purpose. What the Father does, the Son also does. The Father is about eternal life, and the Son is also about eternal life, to give to whomever He wishes. That means that if we're going to have anything of life, it has to be in Christ. It says, He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. If life originates in God, and Christ in human flesh as the Son of Man, God in the flesh, if God in the flesh possesses this life, then why go elsewhere? Correct? Because if it's only in Him to have life in Himself, then we should not go elsewhere. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Why turn away from this life? Seek it in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, not in any vain philosophies of the world, such as the Athenians of Acts chapter 17, whether it's the Stoics or the Epicurean philosophers, the, the Stoics who were more austere and severe with their discipline of life, or the Epicureans who are the modern hedonists who seek for pleasure and do what is right in their own eyes and justify their sin by saying that the Bible or Christianity endorses their sin. We cannot be like any of them, but only seek for life in Christ and not in any vain philosophies or vain religions of the world, because all else outside of Christ is death. It is death and eternal punishment. Only life in Christ. Furthermore, 27. In 27, And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. The Father also gave to the Son another task, another duty, that is to execute judgment. When judgment on the day of judgment is finally manifested, finally demonstrated, finally executed on that day, everyone will know. 
and everyone will see, visibly see, the Son of Man. We know he, they will all visibly see the Son of Man because after the resurrection of Christ, he remains the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. Christ is still a man, and visibly they all, we all will see the Son of God. And it is the Father who has appointed the Son to be the judge of the world, which is also what we saw in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 30, 30 to 31. Acts 17, 30. Remember that this is the Apostle Paul talking to pagans who worship idols, who are in the city of Athens, and at this sophisticated place called the Areopagus, where philosophers and other religionists will be there to explain what they believe and to present something new to amuse and to titillate the curiosities of men who like to consume themselves with human philosophies. That's who are gathered here. And Paul the Apostle has this opportunity to present the truth to them. And when he does, he says in verses 30 to 31, toward the end of his speech, 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that all everywhere should repent. Why? Why should everyone repent? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In the past, God did not send widely, broadly, numerously, God did not send messengers abroad out of the land of Israel, but now he is. So in the past, God overlooked their times of ignorance. But now, God sends missionaries, God sends people, Christians, throughout the nations of the world to command men that all everywhere should repent. All everywhere should repent. Turn away from sin and believe in the gospel, right? And believe in whom? In Christ. And why should they believe in Christ? Why should they turn away from sin, repent of sin? He says in 31, because, and because what? He has fixed a day. God the Father has fixed a day, which means it is a certain day. We could, can be assured that it will happen. It is determined, and God's not going to change his mind. It is determined, he's not going to renege. He has appointed this day, fixed this day firmly, and what will he do? He will judge the world in righteousness. God will judge the world in righteousness. As it was said in Psalm 9, as it was said in Psalm 98. He will judge the world in righteousness, but how will he do it? Through a man. Through a man. Remember it said in John 5? Because he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Because he is the Son of Man, right here also, he is a man that God has appointed. God has appointed Christ, so we all, even people who have never heard about Christ, will be judged by Christ on the Day of Judgment. And how do we know? What is the proof that all of this will happen, certainly happen? 
having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He gave proof or furnished proof to all men by raising Christ from the dead. You may say, how is this proof or why is proof necessary? Well, firstly, why it's necessary having furnished proof? Because men need to know with certainty when they are judged the evidence that is amassed against them. The judge needs to collect all the evidence of a criminal in order to condemn or to judge that criminal. And now God is going to do that, but before he does that, he has given us proof before he does it that we should have never committed those crimes, that we should have obeyed him, that we should have believed his gospel of Christ before we committed those crimes or while we were committing those crimes so that we repented of those crimes, that there is proof. There is absolute proof. And what is this proof? The single most important proof is mentioned here throughout all scripture and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead three days after he was dead and buried. He rose from the dead. This is evident throughout the scriptures, the Old and the New Testaments. The Old Testament uh, prophesies it and then the New Testament announces its fulfillment. And even in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus predicts or prophesies his own resurrection. He does so even before it happens, during his ministry. And then from the book of Acts onward, we have evidence that that indeed occurred. We have evidence from Peter and John. We have, and they wrote books of the New Testament, Peter and John. We have evidence from Paul that he saw the resurrected Christ. Correct? We also have evidence from Luke. Luke records it in Luke chapter 24. We have evidence from Mark in Mark chapter 16. We have evidence from Matthew in Matthew chapter 28. So we have just mentioned six or seven witnesses, right? Eyewitnesses who explain this proof that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if we had six or seven witnesses in a courtroom whose testimony was certain, whose testimony was honest and truthful, would the judge listen to those six or seven witnesses? Absolutely. And all that the judge needs is two or three witnesses to confirm every fact. Just as in the Bible, so also in today's law courts, they require the minimum two or three witnesses to confirm the facts. Well, if we have six or seven after the fact of the resurrection, explaining that in the New Testament, and we even have prophets of the Old Testament explaining that time and again from Genesis to Malachi, predicting the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, then that means we have numerous testimonies to this. Hundreds of years and thousands of years before it happened, and then when it happened or after it happened, we have witnesses. So then, who is the fool? Who is the fool but the one who says that he doesn't believe it? 
having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Well, then you're a fool because there is plenty of evidence. I don't believe that there is a day of judgment. Well, then you are a fool because you don't believe what God's word says. He has given you ample evidence, ample testimony, plenty of evidence to know that even though we don't see that day of judgment, but with our physical eyes, it will happen because God has appointed Christ to execute that day, to be the judge of all mankind on that day. Let us not be fools, but actually believe in what the word says. And then furthermore, one more word of clarification from John 5, 27. It says, because he is the son of man, we have already explained because he came in human flesh, he came and lived perfectly, he came because of God's appointment to be this judge. But this phrase, son of man, remember we said this is no new doctrine, this is no new teaching? Well, let's look at Daniel chapter 7. In the book of Daniel the prophet, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel, if you're looking, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. <coughs> Daniel 7. We can begin at verse 13. Daniel seven thirteen. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." He has an eternal kingdom, this Son of Man, that Daniel the prophet sees in a vision. And the Son of Man is presented or comes up to the Ancient of Days. This Ancient of Days phrase refers to God the Father. And what does the Son of Man receive? He receives this eternal kingdom which encompasses, which entails what? Dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples might and, and nations and men of every language might serve him, might serve him or worship him. Well, how are they going to serve or worship him? Everyone, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language. In verse 10, it has to do with the court sat and the books were opened. Verse 10, judgment takes place. And when judgment takes place, Who's going to be there presiding over all the peoples, nations, and men of every language? The Son of Man. And when the Son of Man does so, he will be worshipped. Remember Ephesians uh, or Philippians, Philippians 2, 9 to 11. It says in verse 11 that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even unbelievers are going to acknowledge the authority of Christ and worship Christ as Lord contrary to what they want. They will do so. And even here, 
Daniel predicts that Christ or the Son of Man will be there to judge and he will be there to be worshipped, he will receive an eternal kingdom. That's why Jesus said to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do we see everything depends on Christ? Then finally, verses 28 and 29. 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Here in 28, do not marvel at this. Why would people marvel? Because if we're talking about things that are unseen, such as being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, and even the day of judgment coming ahead that we do not see yet, people might marvel. They might be wondering, is that really true? How can I know that that's going to be true? And he says, don't marvel at it like that. Don't be incredulous because you can't see it. This is similar in a sense. Remember there was a man that was lowered from the roof of a house. The roof was open. He was lowered and he was on a pallet. This is Mark chapter 2. And Jesus first said, your sins are forgiven. Then his enemies in the house, they are appalled at it and they claim that Jesus blasphemes. And who is he that he can forgive sins, right? They blaspheme. And then, after he hears them say that or think that, Jesus says, and I say to you, take up your pallet and, and walk, right? Why did he say take up your pallet and walk? To prove that what was unseen and only heard by Jesus' words, your sins are forgiven, that that man's sins were actually forgiven and the proof is he is able to walk. What I said that you could not see and you didn't like it, you disdained it, you hated it, your sins are forgiven and you accused me of blasphemy. Now you can see that this man walks, that I have the power to forgive sins because I have the power to make a lame man walk just like that instantly. They still didn't believe, but Jesus made the connection from the spiritual to the physical. In the same way, he's telling us, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. They are in the tombs, that is, corpses, dead people, will one day, even if they are disintegrated, of course, most people are disintegrated unless they die immediately, uh, or in the immediate um, aftermath of their death, they remain in their tombs uh, without disintegration, but finally they all, we all disintegrate in the tombs. But Christ with his power has the ability to integrate or to reintegrate the human body from dust and ashes, from being consumed like that. And then when he does so, on that day of resurrection, he says, there's two groups, verse 29. All who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. Now there are two groups or two categories. Those who did the good or good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So there is a good resurrection and there is also an evil resurrection. There is a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. There is one of life and condemnation. There's two kinds. Firstly, let's show that the Bible has always taught that there will be two kinds. That there will be a bodily resurrection. 
not only of believers to eternal life, but also unbelievers to eternal punishment, eternal judgment and condemnation. All humans will rise from the dead without exception, either to life or to death. The first example is Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. The scripture has always taught this truth. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He says there's two resurrections. These to everlasting life, but the others will rise or awake from the dust of the ground to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Two resurrections, two bodily, physical resurrections. Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. The Apostle Paul speaks before his enemies, before the authorities, because the Jews and even the Romans are plotting against him. And he says this, he says this about his own beliefs and doctrines. Paul says this about his own beliefs and doctrines, that they are actually one and the same with his opponents, or some of his opponents. And if that is the case, why are they against him? That's his point. So what is it? We'll start at 24.14, uh, Acts 24.14. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Paul says, these men, and he, what he meant by, by these men was the Pharisees, not the Sadducees among his opponents, but the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection of the dead. And they were hoping in that, that there would be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. And Paul says, I believe just like they do on this doctrine, so why are they preaching against me when I'm just preaching this doctrine? Why are the Pharisees against me when this is the doctrine I preach that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked? This is the scriptural teaching. One day all will rise and either to eternal life or to eternal death. But then we must have a clarification in verse 29. John 5, 29, the good deeds and the evil deeds. He does not mean we are saved by works. What he means is when a judge, when a judge judges, he has evidence that is presented, evidence that is displayed, correct? And so the evidence of our salvation is presented in the good deeds. The evidence of our lack of salvation, of our evil dead heart, is the presentation of evil deeds. It's a matter of the fruit of what's in the heart, which is the focus on the day of judgment. Right now we need the conversion of the heart, but at that time the conversion of the heart is impossible on the day of judgment, and all that we have 
is to present what we have done. Correct? And presenting what we have done, the good deeds we saw earlier from verses 25 to 26 is only possible if Jesus calls us from death to life. Right? He's already explained that. So he does not mean we're going to be receiving eternal life because we did good. It's not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. It says in Titus 3, 4, and 5. We are not saved by doing deeds in righteousness, but our deeds show that we are saved. Our deeds show that we are justified, or have been justified by grace through faith in Christ. This is merely what he means. Just like he said in Matthew 7, 16. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 16. You will know them by their fruits. We know we have concrete evidence by what is displayed on the outside, either good or evil. And verse 30. Do we want to challenge this? No, we cannot. Because he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Here, furthermore, again, and this will not be the last time, Jesus inescapably um, puts his will and his purpose, his judgment, he binds it up and joins it with the Father. How can one therefore reject it? How can one therefore reject it? You see how Jesus keeps on turning up the heat. He keeps on turning up the heat because at this point, people might laugh. Ha! Huh. Verses 25 and 26, you say that there is such a thing as spiritual life? Or, ha! Huh, in 27 and 28, you say there is a day of judgment? People ridicule that thought. They mock it. They jeer at it. They sneered at it. We saw in Acts 17 that some of the Athenians sneered at the things that Paul said because he just mentioned the day of judgment. And also in verse 30, ha, and with laughter, no, Christ is not one in his will and judgment with the Father. No. But he says, no, I am. I am one with the Father, both in nature and in will. I do whatever the Father says for me to do. So you better believe me and never reject me. That's the point of verse 30. Let us not take it superficially, casually. Let us not be dismissive and reject what Jesus says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.